Welcome to All Along the Wasatch, a public affairs program produced by Bonneville Salt Lake City. If you would like to submit a request to be on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. Now, here's the host of All Along the Wasatch, Mike Parsons. My guests today are from the in-between, Jillian Olmsted, who is Executive Director, Kelly Meermut, who is the Community Engagement Manager, the in-between, and the website is tibhospice.org. Thank you for being here. So let's start by just talking a little bit about about your background, Kelly. How did you come to be at the in-between, and what, what's your background? Yeah, definitely. So I have an extensive background in um, service learning and uh, leadership amongst the college campuses and working in the community, which uh, took me off into a path of volunteer administration. And so I've been working in and out of nonprofits, working on volunteer Coordination, management, um, helping train others in the state on volunteer administration. And I had been a longtime supporter of anything hospice related Mm -hmm. due to um, just people in my life who I've cared for. And a position opened up um, that brought both of them together for me of being able to serve those in the community along with serving as hospice um, providers and caregivers. And Jillian, I know you have not been the executive director for too long. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yes. So the way that I found the in-between is a little bit different than Kelly. Um, When the in-between was first opening about seven years ago, it was opening relatively close to my neighborhood. And I saw in the newspapers all of the consternation with the not in my backyard. And I wanted to get involved. And not too long after I read about it, my parents were both diagnosed with cancer. They were both put on hospice, and they died within about six weeks of each other. And I just said, I need to be a part of this organization because if they didn't have insurance, if they weren't middle class, what would the alternative have been? And why don't we think that this place needs to be open in our city? So I started volunteering. I was doing events. Um, random cooking, cleaning, and I was hired on, and I've done just about every position in the organization, and I've been there for about five and a half years. I think that's a great executive director, somebody that's worked (laughs) their way up through the ranks because they understand every piece of it. She's done everything from donor stewardship to cleaning toilets to, uh, (laughs) you know, like she said, putting together welcome baskets. (laughs) So, Kelly, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the background of the in-between, who started it, why, and when. Yeah, so way before our opening date of 2015, um, we had – there was a couple people in the community actually looking at this topic of medical respite for the homeless community. Um, our visionary is um, was a former nurse up at Huntsman Cancer Institute, Deborah Thorpe. And she just, you know, in her talkings with her community and at her local um, church's food pantry, started talking to individuals about how hard it was to see patients have to be discharged to the street after chemo or radiation. And so through those conversations and just opening it up to more people, um, there was a great community interfaith council along with a lot of other um, community resource programs in the area, including 4th Street Community um, Clinic. So 4th Street um, came together, their um, executive director at the time, Alan Ainsworth, working with Debbie and a bunch of other really great committed individuals on saying, what do we do with our individuals in our community after they've gone through something like this? You cannot, you cannot get hospice on the street. 
You literally have to have a physical address for that care to be given, as well as a surrogate family. Mm. And so um, through Debbie's vision and through 4th Street Clinic and all of the great individuals working there, this this dream, this vision of an actual place, an in-between, where individuals from our community could actually get the cancer treatment they needed or they could get the hospice care that they needed. And I should have mentioned it's the in-between, in with two ends. Correct. The in between. And Jillian, what is it that you do? Oh, well, it's it's much more than just a place where people can go to pass away. And, you know, our tagline has been hospice for the homeless. It's been medical respite for the homeless. But it's a whole lot more than that. Um, like Kelly stated, number one, we're the address for people. They need an address to receive stable medical care, especially hospice. Um, dialysis, cancer treatment are all things that medical providers want you to have a stable housing environment to even get those treatments. Um, but from... From the time they walk into the building, they are given a surrogate family. They know that we're there to um, help them every step of the way. Um, We provide case management. We have 24-7 medical care. We have a full kitchen staff with three meals a day. And um, I think one of the biggest projects we've been working on is getting permanent housing for people when we discharge them. Um, You know, medical respite is what our mission is, but... Discharging someone to the street just because they've recovered from an illness probably means they're going to come back to us in a few years. Um, So our goal is to make sure that we are setting them up for success once they leave the facility, whether that's teaching them some some financial skills like budgeting, polishing up their resume, teaching them some job skills, or getting them on the housing list. So we do a lot more than just provide them a place to recover or um, receive hospice services for end of life. So this is quite different than being a homeless shelter. Correct. We are not a shelter. So we one of the biggest differences is that we don't allow walk-ups. And, and that's a zoning reason. It's not necessarily um, something that we prefer or don't prefer. But you do need a medical referral to come into mm-hmm. our program. So um, when a hospital or street outreach refers someone to us, we go through all of their medical records. Can we actually provide care for them? Because we're not a skilled nursing facility. We're an assisted living facility and medical respite. So they have to fall within you know, a specific level of care. If it's end of life, um, it really doesn't matter what their background is, what they've done in their past. We, you know, we're there for them. We know that just because somebody may be committed a crime in their life or is a drug addict, that doesn't mean that they don't deserve a place to die with dignity. Mm-hmm. Now, I did notice on your website that it is a sober living facility, so you do require them to not drink or do drugs while they're there. Correct. Yep. And Kelly, maybe you could just tell us about the facility itself. How many beds do you have? What does it look like? Yeah. So when we when we did do that first opening, um, we only were able to serve up to 16 individuals. Um, so since we've moved up to our property um, in the Liberty Heights Wells area, just below 13th East and 13th South, we were able to actually acquire a building that was already set up as an assisted living nursing home. So now we've got a sprawling property um, where we can actually serve up to 50 individuals. So we've got a license for our assisted living side of 25 individuals we can serve, and then our our independent or recuperative care side, which is another 25 individuals. But it is basically a big circle. It's our home. Um, not only do we have, um, in, you know, individual rooms for those who are on hospice, um, because they usually require a little more, um, equipment in their room and possibly some, um, family that they're reunited with. We also, we go around the rest of the building. We have some rooms that are doubled, some rooms that, you know, share a restroom, but everyone's got their own space. 
they've got their home now, right? Um, but we also have other things that you would see at maybe a typical um, nursing home, which would be an activities calendar. So we're providing activities on a daily basis um, to keep individuals occupied, also to help them through a lot of things of coping, whether it's coping from their loss, their illness, other things that have happened in their life. How can we help engage them? But now we take that to another level, and it's how can we engage them back into the community and into society. So we've got an activities coordinator, and we've done some Tracy Avery out, hmm. you know, outreach visits. We're going to the museum this weekend, um, but we bring volunteers in as well, right? So volunteers that can say, we are to your surrogate family. We are going to go on these outings with you. You are no different than we are. And a lot of those volunteers sign up to sit bedside. When someone actually enters that active dying phase, we put out a call to our trained NODA, No One Dies Alone volunteers, Mm -hmm. and they come in around the clock 24-7 while someone's in that active dying phase. So no one is ever alone at that point when they're at the in-between. We also have some fun things like our atriums. We've got a hair salon on site. Um, So we have registered, licensed petitions come in and do haircutting. So we've got all of that. That's kind of the normal of what Mm -hmm. you would see for an assisted living. But at the in-between, it's the community that's built, resident to resident, volunteer to resident, and staff. And it's just something kind of unique and different and beautiful Hmm. because everyone really is there to see each other hopefully succeed. Mm-hmm. And that could even be in a, in a peaceful passing. Maybe somebody's rekindled or reunified with family. They've cleared up debt before they've gone. Whatever it might be, it's a peaceful transition to outside or to the other end. Because when I first read about what you do, I, I imagined it would be kind of a solemn and almost a sad place, but it sounds yeah. like it's anything but. Oh, my gosh. It is <laughs> definitely. Um, there are times, right, where sure. we have it. Um, so at the, we are actually at our, um, we just had not too long ago, our 105th individual to pass away peacefully. There is a different energy that comes across our building on a day when somebody mm-hmm. passes. Um, there's also a different energy in the building on the day when someone's um, declared actively dying in that we put up a blue butterfly on the outside of their door uh, so that we can keep space, right. in, you know, in some quieter energies right. at that time. Yeah. But So there's things that change, um, you know, up and down a little bit. But tomorrow we're celebrating our seventh anniversary. We have a huge party planned for our parking lot. We've got a water slide and everything, right? And so we have those moments. And yeah. come on a Friday afternoon for bingo, <laughs> not a dry eye in the house. <laughs> it's a lively bunch. And, Jillian, I know there's something you do to remember those, those folks that pass away in your facility. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we know that when someone passes away on the street, there's not much that they're going to be remembered by. If a family member tries to search them at some point in time, they're not going to know what happened to their loved one. So we provide an internal memorial for our residents, um, a candle lighting ceremony, essentially, to give everybody some time to just grieve or mourn or tell stories. Um, If there was family, we help them provide a memorial. They can provide it on site. We then etch their name in stone on our memorial wall out in the front of our building. We post an obituary on our website, Um, which is something that you probably saw when you were looking at our Mm -hmm. website. Uh, We just launched our new website, so we'll be adding a ton of obituaries that we've been working on over the years. We just want to make sure that that these individuals have something to be remembered by. And we do have people that email us and say, I just found my father on your website. I had no idea what happened to him. Now I know. Hmm. And it sounds like an amazing place, which, of course, costs money. Where does your funding come from? 
Uh, most of our funding is coming from private foundations and individual donations. So, you know, every bit counts. We ask everyone who has any additional money in their budget to provide a one-time donation or a monthly recurring donation. Um, we're looking to get more funding um, all the time. Always. Like every nonprofit. <laughs> Always, every, right? Yeah. Like every nonprofit. <laughs> so, you know, we, we make do with what we have. We have to change our budget every year to fit the funding that's mm-hmm. coming in. Mm-hmm. So the more funding we have, the more people we can serve. Right now we're receiving about 75 referral calls a day. And in taking in uh, someone probably every two to three days, and we have a ton of people on our waiting list. Um, So, yeah, we definitely would love more funding so that we can fill all 50 of our beds. We're talking to Julian Olmstead. She's executive director, and Kelly Merritt, who is the community engagement manager from the In Between, I-N-N Between, and the website is tibhospice.org. I would imagine you have lots of volunteer opportunities. We do. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah, it ranges literally from um, volunteers helping us with our front desk, being the reception, to our volunteers driving residents to doctor's appointments. This has been huge for us recently, especially with gas costs. Um, we've tried to provide that in-house, but it is just too many as our numbers continue to go up. So we have volunteers who will drive residents to doctor's appointments. We have some support groups on site, so we've got maintaining sobriety. So we have volunteers coming in for that. Um, we also have volunteers who do the activities. So we've got our Friday night movies as well as our bingo, um, which are great. But then we also have volunteer care aides, again, those direct um, resident supports. Can we help clean the room today? Are we struggling with um, cluttering? So helping people individualize their rooms and their spaces a little bit. Um, We even have some uh, volunteers that will come in and help work one-on-one with residents who might be filling out paperwork. Um, We also have chaplains that come on. As a part of, like, usually any hospice program, there's a chaplain. Not necessarily religious or spiritual, but somebody there to support the individual and the family. So we work closely with all of our hospice providers and our individual chaplains um, that have signed up as volunteers through the in-between. Anything, again, from serving food, helping us clean and keep the place sanitary, cancer treatments are our gut-wrenching alone for individuals, and we have to keep our space clean and sanitary. And we've also been super blessed during this pandemic year to not have community spread. But a lot of that is dependent on our volunteers coming in to help support us. Do you have the, I mean, you serve three meals a day. Do you have the availability for groups to come in and provide a meal? Yes, we do. Yes, yes, we do. Yep. Um, It's always a benefit for our kitchen um, if we have somebody who can come in and do that, um, either by serving it, purchasing it. Um, We have had some individuals in the past actually utilize the kitchen um, to make some meals. So there's a variety of different things. We also have had people sponsor different holidays. We had a great noon Year's Eve party. Mm. Um, And so those are always fun where individuals might sponsor a meal, bring it in. And then that means our kitchen staff doesn't even have to do anything and everything is taken care of. So a lot of great supports there. And, of course, the very best way to support any nonprofit is financial donation. But you also, on your website, have a wish list. So if people want to donate things, what sorts of things are you looking for? So I always tell people to just think about what you're getting when you're at the store. Um, We need toilet paper. We need tissue, um, magazines, books, activities. Um, We do pretty well on clothing thanks to um, 
the Church of Latter-day Saints were able to use DI vouchers to get clothing. But pretty much everything else that you're purchasing, coffee, creamer, sugar, just everything. And if you check our wish list, we update it regularly. You can purchase from Amazon or if you're at Costco and just grab an extra pack of tissues, you can bring it by and drop it off. I also loved the shop for a cause thing. Tell us how that works because you can be donating without even realizing you are. Correct. Yeah. If you use Amazon Smile, you can designate them between as your charity. Um, so if, if you're like Kelly, you'll, we'll get a ding every time that she um, purchases something from Amazon. <laughs> and if you're I have a bad habit in the evening. <laughs> How many things are in your cart right now? Well. <laughs> and same with Smiths. When you go to Smiths, you can tie your card to the in-between. And we get a few hundred dollars every quarter from them. Uh, you know, everything makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always like to give nonprofits a chance to thank their big supporters. So who are your big, whether it's corporates or foundations, who who are the big supporters that are making it happen for you guys? So the Eccles Foundation um, was definitely integral in us purchasing this new facility. Um, they gave us a very large donation. The state of Utah also helped us purchase this building. You can look at our website for our whole list of supporters. There's way too many to thank. Um, but, you know, people. a lot of the names people know, the Miller Foundation, the Escucci Foundation, the Wheeler Foundation. Um, we have a great list of supporters. What do people misunderstand about homelessness? What are some of the myths around homelessness? You know, the, there's a lot of stigmas, right, that people want to be isolated, that um, they come with addictions, that they've chosen to be there. Um But really, it is so much more than that. We have definitely, we've had individuals come to us who were never homeless a day in their life, end up with breast cancer, end up missing work, end up losing their job, losing their health insurance, losing their house, and then they are homeless. And so one of the biggest things is that it could be any one of us. Mm -hmm. Like we could literally be a bed for any one of us in the near future. Um, And it doesn't have to be necessarily something that's chronic or long term, Um, but that it's just there's a misconception out there. Are oftentimes our individuals who are unhoused feel a lot of shame um, and everything like that. And when we don't look at them in the eyes, we're contributing to that. When we don't provide space for them to heal or to recover or to even pass away and die, we're furthering that isolation. We're not giving them any compassion and any dignity. And it's the inhumanity around that, right? But really, anybody could be there. And a lot of times the drug addiction, it comes because they're trying to minimize their pain. Mm. They've got something, a medical crisis, an ailment. And so far what they found to help alleviate that pain is street drugs. Yeah. Not right. the best. We, we say it, we're saying it's not good. Right. But there are circumstances that put individuals, our neighbors, in these situations. And they deserve just as much compassion, humanity, dignity, and respect as anyone. Sure. I looked at the homelessness numbers for you, Tan. It looks like we've been increasing the last few years after being kind of stable for a while. Was that the pandemic that caused that? What other contributing factors do you think? Yeah, the pandemic is huge. And then just the housing the housing market. It is, it's just unaffordable. There's just so much about that um, that, that contributes towards not being able to go and get a place, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of homeless um, individuals, unsheltered individuals who work multiple jobs. They literally cannot afford to live in our society. That's one of the biggest things right mm-hmm. there, right? 
Um, yes, pandemic has increased and contributed a lot to that. Um, the housing did as well, especially with a lot of the moratoriums on, you know, late fees and mm-hmm. rents. And once all of those things became expired during that pandemic, after that, we're just back out there again. But then you've also got to think of all the exasperated um, medical issues. Right. Long, long COVID. Right. People who had never been sick a day in their life can end up with COVID and, and paralyzed, basically, and having to relearn how to walk and how to move and how to just be a normal citizen. Right. So we've got exasperated conditions that's increasing. Um and there's just more and more people, right? So more people are finding, you know, well, Utah's got some great services. Let's go to Utah. Yeah. You know, they've got a decent summer, not too bad of a winter, but yet we're getting both ends of it, right? So it just kind of um, spreads a little bit and is the gamut of, yeah. of different things and conditions. You mentioned earlier Fourth Street Clinic. What sure. other nonprofits do you partner with? This is one of the things I love about the more nonprofits I talk to in Salt Lake, the more I find out how everybody, it's not competitive. It's right. very supportive. So who are your partners? I think the two biggest people we're working with is Volunteers of America. They have their street outreach team, so they can obviously be constantly telling us people they have on their radar and um, also tell us people that would be a good fit for our program because they're talking to individuals on the street every day. And then 4th Street, we work th- with them extremely closely because if someone is unfunded and does not have insurance, they can go to 4th Street and they they can get their prescriptions for free. They can get mental health care for free. And 4th um, Street refers people directly back to us that need a higher level of care that can't be on the street. So those are our two biggest partners. And then um, obviously we work with a lot of the, the hospitals, mm-hmm. even those nonprofit hospitals. Um, IHC, Intermountain Healthcare is a big partner of ours as well. Um, so that's another one there. And the University of Utah. Yeah, but, a lot of our referrals are coming from the University of Utah. And Huntsman Cancer Institute. So there's just so much out there as far as funneling into it. But you asked what's sort of the misconception about homelessness, right? Well, there's also sort of a misconception about what it is to come to the in-between. And so I would say that that's another thing to kind of always look at is we're not just a place where someone goes to die. Like we are a place where somebody can recover too. Um, And so those partners really help us as they're on the street and they're talking to individuals. They may know somebody who came to the in-between and died with us, right? So they think of us as that place you go to die. Mm. And so, no, it's it's more than that, too. It's helping them re, you know, recalibrate their right. life. I noticed, I think the numbers I saw on your website were you've had about 100 people that have passed away at your facility, but more like five or 600 people that have been through there and are still with us. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. Yeah. And that number is definitely increasing. And I do want to highlight um, Intermountain because they do provide charity care for individuals who are unfunded. And um, if someone's undocumented, there really is no good place for them to go. It's really difficult for them to get into any sort of skilled nursing facility. So we've had undocumented people for a lengthy period of time and Intermountain will see them um, 100% charity care. And we wouldn't be able to take care of those individuals without our partnership with Intermountain. Where do you see the in-between, say, five years from now? Oh, geez. Well, I think we're, we're just going to continue to be extremely busy. 
Um, hopefully we will expand our beds at some point. Our building can hold about 72 beds and we're at 50. Um, so we can definitely increase those numbers a little bit. Um, I think that we're, our need is going to stay where it is. I, I think that we're doing what we need to do right now. And it's not always about the bigger, better, shinier mm-hmm. object. Right. I think we just need to perfect what we're doing and figure out how to prevent the recidivism of people who come back to our program and we go, okay, how did we not set them up properly mm-hmm. so that they had the proper skills to navigate their medical care and navigate housing and navigate the um, their job. So I think we'll be right where we are. Yeah. I, yeah, I really love nonprofits that have a very specific purpose and a very specific focus and it sounds like yeah. That's what you guys do without – because there's always the temptation to creep into other areas. <laughs> Mission creation. <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> Jillian Olmstead, Executive Director, and Kelly Mermet, who is the Community Engagement Manager. And if you want to check out the in-between online, it's tibhospice.org. That's tibhospice.org. Thank you so much for what you're doing in our community. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to All Along the Wasatch with Mike Parsons. If you would like to submit a request to be a guest on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. That's mparsons at ksl.com. 